Welcome to Bedside Reading, the podcast where each episode I interview somebody about a book, a novel, a poetry collection, a memoir or biography, not traditional medical textbooks, and we explore the themes within which help make us better healthcare professionals. It's a bit like accidental CPD. Take us for a walk or a run, snuggle up with a cup of tea on the sofa, maybe with a lap full of kittens, listen on your way to work and add some immersive CPD, as well as getting some ideas for your to-read pile. Please let me know if you're enjoying the podcast. Rate us, review us. This really helps the algorithms of podcasting to suggest us to other people who haven't found us yet. Find us on Twitter, at Bedside Podcast, on Instagram, at Bedside Reading Podcast. And if there's a book you're desperate to come on the show to discuss, please do get in touch on Twitter, Insta, or by emailing bedsidereadingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Tara George, a GP, medical educator, and compulsive reader and book buyer. This is Bedside Reading. Another Pride Month special today. I'm welcoming Ellie Corso, GP Registrar, to talk about This Winter by Alice Oseman. And we realise that an episode going out in the middle of summer, especially for Pride, because this is part of the most phenomenal young adult series of LGBTQI novels, The Heartstopper Selection, it does feel slightly odd to be talking about a book that's based at Christmas in the summer, um, but do bear with us. It is such a phenomenal short book. We have Charlie, 15, gay, has an eating disorder, family struggling to cope, sister rather better at it than his parents, his wonderful, wonderful boyfriend, Nick, and Nick's fabulous family. And it's really a book that's told through the eyes of children, a section from Tori's perspective, a section from Charlie's perspective, and a section from the perspective of Oliver, their little brother, who's sitting quietly watching everything and seeing a lot more than any of the grown-ups would have given him credit for. It's an absolutely brilliant short book. It's only 90 pages, but it's 90 pages that really packs a punch that there is so, so much to get out of. And it's so, so easy to read and so well worth reading. Ellie, welcome to Bedside Reading. Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's an absolute pleasure. So before we get going, and we are today going to be talking about This Winter by Alice Oseman. Would you like to introduce yourself so that my listeners know who I'm talking to this week? Yeah, so um, my name is Ellie. I am a GP trainee in my third year. And I'm part of the Chesterfield and Derbyshire scheme, which is uh, absolutely a fantastic scheme. I've been lucky enough to have Tara as a supervisor, uh, along with lots of other great GPs. And yeah, it's um, been a really great experience so far. We talk about so many wonderful things and lots of these things that we do talk about come up in this book. So yeah, it's great to be here and yeah, really happy. Good. Oh, I always love it when people give positive feedback about my training programme. So that makes me very happy. So I usually ask my guests if they have a fictional medical hero role model or arch nemesis they'd like to discuss. Is there anybody for you? So mine is sort of at the expense of possibly coming across a little bit childish. (laughs) Um, Mine is Simba from The Lion King. And this is sort of twofold, really. Uh, firstly, anything to do with the Lion King just 
I basically just love The Lion King. And I think it's because it's the first sort of film or memory that I have as a child where I really emotionally connected to some characters. And I it's the first film that I've ever cried at. And, you know, I'm not really a crier at films. So, yeah, and it's just one that always really resonated with me in that way. And the character of Simba, I think, is a real, well, it's a coming-of-age tale through tragedy, hardship and I think I've sort of realized that this is more pertinent in my training more recently particularly being a GP um, and this whole conversation about adverse childhood experiences and what that means for individuals and particularly child children and adolescents and how these manifest and how actually for some they can be turned into a positive thing depending on what sort of scaffolding and support they have around them. So Simba, you know, his dad died from a very young age. So that's one adverse childhood experience or ACE. And this was, the death was um, as a result of his father's brother killing him. And that was all out of greed. So there's betrayal through family, greed, and all for the sake of sort of power. And so he's, you know, poor Simba, he's had a lot of adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, he starts off his life being exiled and not having his kingdom. And he has a bit of a lonely road and he's a bit arrogant. You know, he's not initially very likable. Um, but actually through the support of characters like Timon, Pumba, um, Rafiki, his girlfriend Nala, <laughs> all these nice characters who just add a bit of joy and a bit of quirk and each add their own little element of wisdom or romance or friendship you know, that scaffolding comes into play. And actually, you know, he becomes the king that he was meant to be. And I think that's really just why I love it so much. Um, that there's so much emotion and Simba's great. And the reason he's great is for all those people. And so I think, you know, just relating that into practice in, you know, GPs, we're not heroes or anything like that. But if we can play any small role in just helping provide that scaffolding, then I think that's really important to recognise, or even just in day-to-day -day life with friends and family, just recognising when you can be that source of support. So, yeah, that is um, my my hero is Simba, Simba and friends. I love that. And I think that sense, isn't it, of, of having people around you and people for support and knowing that the most important thing is actually having some sort of a primary attachment figure and how valuable that is and um, and I suppose there actually as you say you know with Simba he's you know he his father has died and he has been exiled and yet he does have those very very positive friendships and the stable grown-ups who help him to find his way in the world um, and you know I think the more we the more we talk about adverse childhood experiences and the importance of getting the early years right the more that we can see actually I sort of keep thinking actually novelists and playwrights and film script writers they all know this and I find it fascinating that talking about aces is something that really has come into medicine pretty late I mean I think probably any more than five years ago I wouldn't have known what anyone was talking about but actually in almost all good films literature there is a story that you actually look back and you go oh this is adverse childhood experiences and this is a quest 
And I just find it find it quite interesting that actually, as medical professionals, it's taken us an awful lot longer than it's taken novelists to realise that this is what causes people to be who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been so lucky in the Chesterfield scheme, as I mentioned, because, you know, a lot of our group sort of BTS sessions do touch upon these really important topics and less on the medical side. And that's really valuable because, you know, we always do think that, you know, very medically with our medical hats on, problem, fix it, what's the science, what's this? But actually, we know from our end that there's more to it than that. And so actually talking about these things and learning about them and constantly revisiting them and having speakers and uh, sort of podcasts and various things, it really opens up sort of your understanding of, of things like trauma and trauma-informed care and, as you mentioned, ACEs and everything. So, yeah, it's... Very interesting. Brilliant stuff. So we are going to come on and talk about This Winter. And it does feel slightly odd to be recording mm. a book called This Winter, which is actually all about Christmas and in the middle of the summer. Um, in our defence, it's Pride Month. That's why we're talking about This Winter. Um, because I honestly think that the Heartstopper series has been one of the greatest joys of my reading over the last year. Um, and I admit I'd watched the TV show first and then discovered the graphic novels. I'd never read a graphic novel before. Um, and now I love graphic novels. So Alice Oseman has done that for me. And This Winter is the most glorious novella we were counting before. It's actually only 90 pages. And it sits really between Heartstopper 2 and 3, but is all of the characters from Heartstopper, Charlie, Nick, Sister Tori, and their families, and focuses just on a single day, Christmas Day. Yeah, and what's even more funny is not only is it only 90 pages, but the, the actual book is tiny. <laughs> the actual size of the pages is small, and some of them are just pictures. So it's a really quick, easy read, and each each page almost, or each line, is almost relevant and person and has some underlying meaning so you just get through so many themes in such a short span of time but in a really relatable easy to read and although emotionally draining it's actually not emotional draining because it's so easy to read and short so yeah I think it's a fantastic book that depicts a lot of different things I love the cover um so the picture on the cover there is a light bulb that's been turned into a snow globe and the label beside it says time to pretend we're a perfect family and I do think that's one of the issues isn't it with Christmas for so many people that you know every family is a little bit dysfunctional or quite a lot dysfunctional and families just kind of muddle along and do their thing and then suddenly Christmas day arrives and we must all do a particular thing in a particular way I think I don't really know where that comes from yeah there's a lot of pressure on Christmas there's a lot of pressure that it's filled with a lot of gifts filled with a lot of food filled with a lot of um drinking and you know not all families fit into that perfect bubble and um, particularly this family um so Charlie sadly uh suffers from uh, mental health problems and one of those manifestations is an eating disorder so obviously Christmas day is really emotionally charged for him because it it in essence revolves around that big turkey meal um so there's a lot of pressure on him and there's family coming over and 
you know, Charlie is a walking bag of worries, isn't he? From even before Christmas Day. I mean, he's got rife with anxiety. He's he's always overthinking, always really concerned about what people might think of him. He's the first person to say sorry for anything. He just assumes he's done something wrong. So, um, you know, this sort of day where it's about eating, his family know he's quite poorly. Uh, he was only recently discharged from an inpatient unit to help him with his eating disorder. Um, so he's really working himself up about today. And so is his family, understandably. It's a big day. It's told, I think, really beautifully. So there are three children in the family. You've got Tori, who's the older sister, Charlie, who's the middle one, and then Oliver, their little brother. And so at this Christmas, Tori's sort of 16, 17, Charlie's 15, and Oliver is seven. Mm. And I really love the way each of the three sections is narrated in the first person and through the eyes of that child. And it really made me think of how different scenarios or how different a scenario can look when viewed through a different person's lens with different understanding different worries and I think I mean I think Alice Oseman is just a phenomenal writer anyway but I think here um you know the talent really shines through absolutely I mean we all view our worlds through our own lenses and some people are better at looking at other people's lenses and thinking about how that might make them feel. And the person who does that really brilliantly in this book is Charlie's sister, Tori. Uh, I think she's maybe one year older, yeah. And uh, she really is almost acting as a mother figure where Charlie's mother is pretty useless, if we're being honest, at providing a caring mothering role with regards to Charlie's eating disorder. Um, so Tori really recognises, I mean, she says some really brilliant things like, today isn't about me, today's about supporting Charlie. And that's quite grown up for a teenager to say. Everyone wants Christmas Day to be about fun and, as I say, presents and food. But she's really being the bigger person, recognising that it, it's not about her. This is a really tough day for Charlie. How are we going to navigate this? What can I do to help? Again, as we're talking, as I mentioned with Simba and friends being that support, it's so important to recovery and health and just removing yourself and thinking about others. And his mum just doesn't do that. His mum is obviously freaking out I think because it's a stressful day how can I help gosh this is going to be difficult she's having to cook for family members quite stressful I mean we don't hear it from her perspective but that's what I imagine is going on and uh she doesn't do a very good job it climaxes to her sort of shouting at Charlie and saying essentially saying why do you why are you making this all about you you're so dramatic and oh it's just a cringeworthy moment and you just think I wish you hadn't said that and Tori the sister wishes she hadn't said it and Charlie wishes she hadn't said it so it's it really shows you the importance of taking a step back from your own emotions when someone's vulnerable and trying your hardest to be there but it's really hard particularly as a family and everyone's involved in some way or another so yeah it's really tough. I really felt for Tori in there because, you know, she has her own issues and she's got all all her own teenage angst. And actually she just wants it to be okay for Charlie. And I love the bit where she fairly early on in the day says, do you think you're going to be okay today? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. And 
she reflects in her mind that she's read that it's really important to recognise what might be difficult and to ask the question. But she even she's you know she's only 16 but she's got the emotional intelligence to twig that charlie doesn't want to talk about this so i just need to be here and there are so many situations in the book um so in the tory section we have her telling telling the day as her aunts and uncles and the cousins arrive and all of these disparate relatives who only see each other on christmas day and here she is you know she's probably Charlie's closest relative. And she's recognised that he'll talk to her when he's ready and if he needs to, and she's just offered that space. And they arrive and they're just full of horrible, intrusive questions. And I mean, they are just awful. And I think when I first read it, I thought, God, nobody would be that awful. And then I read it again and I thought, do you know, actually people would be. And I think it's one of those things where we take it for granted, don't we, as healthcare professionals, that we most of the time can be quite tactful and that we have an awareness of what an eating disorder might be. The idea that Christmas Day is probably the worst day of the year for anybody with an eating disorder, that it's really important to ask a how are you question and not to ignore somebody, but not to say, so how long have you been out of hospital? What was it like? What was it like in that mental unit? And and, and they're just they're just awful, the crass questions. And you sort of almost sense that they probably think that they've done a really good job because they've asked their troubled nephew how he is. And actually what they've done is made him feel absolutely dreadful. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is, and what's just done so brilliantly here is, as you've mentioned, you have to be invited into that conversation and that person has to be ready. And that could be very different one day from another and so you really have to tread that carefully and have good communication skills that you phrase it in such a way that it although you're asking can I be invited they feel so safe that they want you to be invited into that conversation so and that's just what Tori does so well and as you say that's just what the rest of the family do so badly and again you know there's things with language and uh, ignorant people will use phrases very sort of without thinking and they'll come in the terms of sort of psychomaniac and mental and these are all throwaway terms that actually are derived from mental illness. Um, and I think people sometimes forget, can forget that, that those words, yeah, they have, they come from a hard place. Um, yeah. So moving on to the middle section, um, we've got Charlie's voice and Charlie's feelings and Charlie as he essentially runs away from the house though actually his mum sort of chucks him out she's like get away get out of my hair and and I I find I found that really difficult because Charlie's mum is everything that I feel like I want not to be and that I think most parents would want not to be but as you say you do wonder actually should we be a little bit more forgiving towards her because she's She's having a really tough time. I mean, I think, you know, cooking the Christmas dinner is a really stressful day for a lot of people. And she's got this son 
that's just come out of an inpatient unit and she's got all of these relatives descending on them. Though there is a little bit of me that almost wants to say, oh, for goodness sake, wouldn't this have been the year to have a really quiet Christmas? I mean, come on, come on, you need to do this to yourselves. Um, so she sort of kicked him out, as it were, um, and he's gone um, round to Nick's house, Nick being his amazing, amazing boyfriend. And I think it's it's almost hard just to think about this winter without thinking about, I suppose, the wider Heartstopper context and that relationship between Charlie and Nick. But I just adore them. I adore them as a couple because they are so believable and they are so in tune with one another. And because Nick is just amazing, but believably amazing. You know, he's a 16-year-old boy, written as a 16-year-old boy, but he's like the 16-year-old boy that everybody would want to fall in love with. I mean, Nick is just an absolute ray of sunshine. Everyone wants to have him in in your life because he really is just the epitome of the word nurture. Uh, you know, he's always there. He's never forceful. He recognises he wants to help, but understands the limitations of the word fix. He's not going to fix everything. And And I think, yeah, actually Charlie's dad is a bit of a fixer. And it doesn't go so well because he can't fix things. And yeah, Nick's just has his own, you know, struggles with uh, sexual identity um, and navigating that. Uh, so he, through Charlie, found out that he was bisexual. And, you know, I think what we've learned from Nick is the importance of a supportive family and how that does help you become such a wonderful character. So his mum is also just fantastic because when when Nick comes comes out to his mum as such, you know, there was no no bother. It's oh, she was just the most supportive. It was the most calm interaction, and that's all you could want. You know, that's safe space, and that's really reflected in the safe space that Nick provides for Charlie. And that is why you know on this Christmas Day, Charlie has fled towards that nurturing comforting space because what that's what everyone wants and I think everyone wants that and as we say even for Charlie's mum who we think oh she's pretty rubbish and that's quite poor in terms of a nurturing role you know if we heard her story I think we have a little bit of compassion as well and I think that's the same for every person's story when you actually hear it from their side Apart from maybe the 0.001% are just horrible people. <laughs> um, most people, you'll find an element of compassion uh, and a bit of a story that, that makes you feel a little bit sorry for someone. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But Nick's character is the reason. I think Nick's character, I mean, sorry, Charlie. Yeah, no, Nick's character is the reason Charlie, although he's a bag of worries and he's got you know a lot of anxiety and problems with self-esteem and worth I think through their relationship he's got a lot of uh strength actually um and that's really wonderful to see depicted throughout and there are so many bits and um, when you realize you know what Nick is like so there's, there's Charlie's reflection where he says when people know you're mentally ill most people either want to ignore it completely or they treat you like you're strange scary or fascinating very few people are actually good at the middle ground. 
The middle ground isn't hard. It's just being there, being helpful if help is needed, being understanding, even if they don't understand everything. Nick's good at the middle ground. My parents aren't really, but I know they're trying and occasionally they succeed. Yeah, I mean, you don't really need to say anything more than that because it just says it, doesn't it? It's just, it's just that. It's just the being there. That's all that most people need. And I think it's it's that sort of permission giving. And I think again, perhaps you know, as as doctors, um, you know, we do often have the advantages if we're given permission to ask people questions and quite personal questions. And we are also in a really privileged position where people do disclose things to us. Um, and actually, I was thinking as I as I reread this winter, there are elements of of what Nick does and what Tori does as well, which actually remind me. Um, I know we've both read the Catherine Mannix book, Listen, and you know the chapter in there when she is trying to support her teenagers who were sort of setting up a peer counselling service. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Catherine Mannix knows how to talk about emotions and compassion and all of these things so eloquently and and it is it is just what you're saying being invited into that space but knowing how how to navigate that with words which is an absolute skill which we you know we weren't taught in medical school well that's maybe a bit of an unfair thing to say but certainly in GP training I'm learning so much more about compared to medical school and through reading and through books such as this winter and hearing it from characters first-hand voices and through other authors such as Catherine Mannix you really gain constant understanding and knowledge about how to do that well. And I know you've also as part of your GP training um, done um, a role working in CAMS so has that given you some different skills and different understanding of conversations particularly with young people I mean absolutely that was the most fascinating and well I just felt very privileged to have had that experience not not all people get that opportunity I was really really fortunate in my uh, GP training that that was one of the innovative training programs that was available so I spend half my week with CAMS and I think you know we we know that people's lives are difficult but I don't think you really realize just how many children do suffer and how easy it is to say gosh that child's difficult or gosh that child is um you know a nuisance at school and when you actually break down all of their sphere and what they've grown up knowing you really understand why they are the way they are and you know that naughty child I, I know we're we're in a sphere where we're labeling a lot of kids with a lot of things and whether that's helpful or not is a conversation for another day <laughs> you could go back and forth depending on probably what child and family you speak to anyway or clinician but what is totally recognizable is that there's a lot of trauma out there there's a lot a lot of what cams do is fantastic but the need is so great now and it's managing that and that's where our role you know there is a lot of backlog pressure on gps because 
cans really are seeing the sickest of the sick with you know the five lots of adverse childhood experiences um and so we really need to be able to as gps be able to navigate that sort of middle ground of okay you're not severe enough that you need to be an inpatient but look there's a lot of stuff going on at home a lot of stuff going on at school a lot is going is hard and how do we support and I think the most resonating thing for me um is how children and adolescents use coping strategies so for uh, Charlie, his coping strategy probably is a bit of an eating disorder. He's been bullied. He's uh, had a toxic relationship with another boy that was pretty damaging in terms of self-esteem. So Charlie has, you know, he's got OCD tendencies, but he's also now got an eating disorder. And you can understand where that's all come from. And he's got an element of control. And he recognises that his eating disorder flares when he's stressed and triggered. And that is because you seek that the bits that are within your control because everything else has been out of your control that horrible relationship with that boy was out of your control and this is the one thing that's in your control and for me during cams I learned that with self-harm I certainly had the viewpoint with self-harm that oh my goodness they're going to kill themselves from cutting um or from you know paracetamol overdoses or that you know it's going to mean death and the reality is is no it doesn't it doesn't mean death at all. It is a coping strategy. And it is the one way that a child and adolescent in their moment of distress feels that slight element of control and cope. And I think the one thing that I would urge people to ask when they're dealing with a child or adolescent is just ask, you know, when you do the cutting or, you know, whatever it may be, does it help? And they'll almost say it really helps. And so almost in a way, you then need to navigate that territory of, okay, I'm really glad that it helps, but we need to, you know, we're not going to try and stop it because it's helping you, but here's some tools that you can do to reduce the potential for basically accidental harm. Um, And so I think, that was quite a nice thing for me to take away, just that one thing. Oh, I mean, I took away loads. <laughs> but just that that appreciation that actually lots of kids are struggling to cope and sometimes those things help them to cope and how can we help them cope in that way but so that it minimises harm ultimately rather than being afraid of it, you know. We don't want to be afraid of it as clinicians. That's something that comes up, actually, that Charlie reflects on himself um, in this winter. and. And, you know, he says here, I've heard horror stories about some places that treat patients really badly. But for me, it was what I needed. I got to start therapy properly. I got to meet other people my age who have eating disorders. I had a team of people assigned to help me start working towards recovery. And it made me realise that my coping mechanisms, restrictive eating, self-harm, my other compulsions are just that coping mechanisms. It's not about just stopping myself doing those things. It's about figuring out why I feel those impulses, what the emotional stuff is underneath. And I sort of think here, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're sort of saying you as a capable registrar 
went to CAMS sort of thinking, oh, eating, you know, thinking self-harm and coping strategies. Oh gosh, actually, I don't know how I feel about these. And, and you've, you've come to that understanding. And I think, again, perhaps it's something that we should be a little bit more forgiving of patients and particularly relatives who are really distressed by, you know, this young person is, is doing these things. And saying, well, this is clearly a manifestation of distress, but actually I'm much more worried about what's going on underneath. This is just a symptom. And I, I certainly sometimes frame it, um, you know, particularly with, with parents, if children have been cutting, saying, actually, you know, you know, if you have had a really bad time, what do you do? What at your worst, if you're getting overwhelmed, what do you do? Because so many of them say things like, I pull my hair out or I drink too much, or when I was younger, I took drugs when I was out of, feeling out of control and say, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And we have a little conversation about dopamine and then say, you know, this is really, really scary, but this is almost equivalent to you going out and drinking a bottle of wine on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. This is yep. the almost age appropriate maladaptive mechanism. But, yeah. you know, let's, let's work on that. And I, th- I think, I think schools are probably a lot, lot better about talking about it. But I think one of the other things I really love about Nick here is Nick's ability to do what Charlie says and find the middle way. But also when Nick challenges Charlie just really gently and says things like, do you think maybe you need to ask for some help? Mm-hmm. And and he doesn't take it upon himself. And again, I think, you know, that's a sign of, you know, his maturity as a character. But again, I think it's really, really scary actually as a teenager if one of your friends is really distressed because you think, should I should I solve this? Who do I tell? What am I supposed to do? And Nick's just such a brilliant example of somebody who's absolutely always there for Charlie, but never, ever, ever strays into trying to be a counsellor or trying to solve Charlie's problems. And he's just just a rock. He's just there. And he's like, I'm here. Do you want to talk? Okay, not now. You know, you can if you need to. And then says, I think maybe you ought to talk to your therapist about this. Mm -hmm. And you realise that actually that's what he needs because he doesn't need somebody doing pop psychology on him. He just needs somebody to care. Yeah. And, you know, that actually makes me think of you, Tara, because I remember, I can't remember, I think it was my first year, maybe my second year, And you'd said that more recently and more with increasing frequency, you were realising that with your patients, you didn't always have to do something. And that was quite liberating because obviously as medics, we, we have been drilled to believe that we must fix and, well, we're, we're detectives first. Then when we find, find it, we must fix it. And, you know, the reality is, is no, not all the time. That's very relevant to specialists. You know, you go to see a spiritual consultant, they do millions of investigations, get to the nitty gritty. What weird and wonderful thing is going on here? As GPs and generalists, we don't have to do that. Sometimes, in fact, we have to take a back seat, just think about the wider picture and not do anything, just listen, like you were saying, and just rather than telling the patient what would be good for them and that paternal role, being the Nick and just suggesting, but possibly even in a less obvious way. And that's where all of the motivational interviewing and that sort of stuff comes in, which is a whole other skill set that I've yet to, <laughs> to work on or develop. But it is that understanding of 
people will only change or do things for themselves when they're ready and they want to. And your role in that might just be listening at that very first stage. And that's the beauty of the general practice as well as we get to follow up. So, and we get to build rapport and we get to get closer and closer and into their inner circle and maybe further down the line after three or four appointments, can we then suggest things and they might be receptive and I think that's really nice just as it is with friends and family you know you you get that space to do that sort of stuff if you're allowed to do it so yeah the last little section, which I guess we ought to talk a little bit about, is it's told from Oliver's perspective. And this is from the perspective of Oliver, who is seven and who, you know, his siblings adore him and he adores them. But, you know, he's had this weird Christmas. His brother's not been there for a bit. Then his brother's come back. Then it's Christmas Day. I think there's some slamming of doors and his mum and his brother are shouting at each other. And he's sat playing his new Mario Kart all by himself. And he just wants everyone else to come back. And and I just wanted to pick him up and give him a cuddle. But then there's this bit where his mum says, oh, it's really complicated, but I shouted at him and um, I said some things I shouldn't. And, and it's this simplistic, brilliant bit where he says, I get up off the floor and I give her a hug, which is what you should do when someone's sad. She laughs and pats me on the head. Oh, Oliver, I'm okay. You could just say sorry, I say. That's just what you have to do when you say something bad. You say sorry. And and you think it's you know, it's from his perspective, it's all so simple. Um, and and actually, yeah, I think the family think that Oliver's kind of too little and he's not noticed any of this. And actually they're all trying they're all trying to protect him from all of this, but yeah, he knows what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, Tori loves Oliver, Charlie loves Oliver, I love Oliver. He is so sweet and hearing his narrative in his own voice really um, hammers at home what what this is like for the wider family. And, and I think we don't give children credit enough. I mean, they are sponges. That is their developing brain to just watch, learn, observe, understand, try and translate all of these visual and auditory stimulus into, you know, meaning. And it's a very literal world, but it is less literal than we think and they do they do understand so much and he's the perfect example of just breaking it down in nice simple terms what he's seen and sometimes it is as simple as sorry but we also know how hard it is to say that sometimes when there's so many heightened emotions and that is where you know I've always said that I think everyone should have a bit of CBT whether you need you know whether you think you need it or not because it's just having that awareness of your emotions from a distance is is important in everyday life. I mean, why you get angry about someone leaving something on the counter, that's a bit irrational, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter, but we do. And how do you manage that irrational emotion? Everyone needs it. And yeah, I think Oliver's a really good just reminder that what impact everything can have on people and how simple something can be, but also how hard, hard it can be. Well, I am so glad um, that we have got um, to talk about this winter. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been great to talk about it with you. Um, and I'm glad oh. that um, you love Heartstopper nearly as much as I do. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, I have to say, I was coming into this completely out of my comfort zone, which made me intensely nervous and intensely excited, which was a really strange combo. Um, but yeah, no, it's been really nice. And it's such a great, as we said, easy read. So, and so much to talk about. So it's been really nice. 
to chat on here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bedside Reading. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please do rate and review us. Why not follow us on Twitter at Bedside Podcast? If there's a book you're desperate to discuss, please message. I'd love to have you on to chat about it. Bedside Reading is hosted and produced by Tara George and edited by Louis G.